Well, good morning, everyone. Good to see you all. My name is Seth. This is Matthew. We're a couple of pastors hey on staff. Um, I just want to say a quick word about um, the text that Robin just read before we dive on in. All right. So today is a day where we're going to be responding to questions and as much as possible giving faithful answers or at least faithful responses. Whether they're answers or not, is, uh, we're not totally sure yet, but hopefully there'll be answers, but at least be responses. But this text is a central one for us as a church. And every, every year we do this Ask Anything thing, we really want to draw attention to it. This idea that I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Those two phrases, first importance, or those two words, one phrase, first importance, tells us two things. One, that there are degrees of importance. Uh, so some of the things we're going to talk about today um, will be important, even though they're not of first importance. That there's really only a couple of things that are of first importance, and those are listed right here. That Christ has died in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared, that he rose, and that he's coming back. And so this reality is the central thing of first importance. So there are other things that are important, but they are not of first importance. And so probably the vast majority of questions we get today will be of matters of second or third or fourth or fifth importance. That's not to say they're unimportant. We may get questions about things that are generally unimportant, but um, if you're asking the question, it's probably because it's at least important to you. And therefore, if it's important to you, it's probably somewhat important to us. But there's a few things that are of first importance. And I want us to recognize that as a church, um, what unites us as a body are the things of first importance, not necessarily the things of second, third or fourth or fifth importance. And so you may hear answers to things that are of second, third, fourth or fifth importance that you really don't like. Uh, and some of that might be because you've thought through it a ton. Some of it might be because uh, just on a first like gut level reaction, you don't like it. Uh, and that's okay. I hope that a lot of these questions that we get can be ways of starting the conversation, not ending the conversation. Yeah. Uh, at our longest answers will be maybe four minutes long. And some of these questions you're going to give um, require book length, book, book length responses to be exhaustive. And so um, give us grace as we're trying to give summative, brief answers to really complex life-altering questions even though those complex life-altering questions are probably of second, third, and fourth importance. Because what's central to our church is the gospel of Jesus. And these other things might matter, but they matter less than the gospel of Jesus. And so we're going to have some questions today. But I kind of want to first, the first question that hasn't been asked, but people are probably asking is, why are there just the two of us up here? <laughs> There's someone missing up here. Uh, Luke Simmons, our lead pastor, uh, had a COVID-positive diagnosis. Um, this week, which is, a, which is a real bummer. And his family's doing well. He's home quarantining and recovering. But um, we do want to pray for him. So before we go forward, let's, uh, let's pray for him. Lord, um, we're so thankful that this is your church and that you've provided men and women uh, to lead and, uh, and to guide this congregation. And Lord, we're, we're super thankful. I'm personally thankful for Luke his friendship. Um, I'm thankful for his pastoral care. And um, I and we just want to pray for him. Lord, we pray that you'd give him rest. We pray that he'd recover quickly. We pray that you'd keep the rest of his family um, from getting sick. And uh, God, just bring him back uh, rested and safe to us very, very soon. We trust you. We love you. We lift him up to you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks right. for praying. Well, so part of today is we're responding to questions. So if you have questions, please send them. If we run out of questions, we'll just end early. But um, that's all right. But let's go. Let's kick it off. Matthew, you're going to. Yeah, great. I'll, I'll read. Uh, were the Ten Commandments just for Israel, or do they still apply to us today? 
Yeah, great that's question. a great question. Yeah, so Jesus in the New Testament says that not one dot or iota will pass away from the law, that Jesus comes to fulfill the law, not to abolish the law. And so if we think about the law as God's fatherly instruction to his people about how they might live faithfully among an unbelieving world among their unbelieving neighbors. Uh, it helps us go from trying to think about ways of getting out of God's law to actually trying to come up under it as much as possible. And so I very much understand the Ten Commandments as being um, God revealing his heart to his people for all times and in all places. And if anything, all the other laws can be um, summarized uh, within the Ten Commandments. And so um, they still are in play today, even though the, the exact nature of how we obey them, because we're not living in the ancient Near East, maybe a little bit different, um, but they're still for God. God's people for his church. And I think they're a really helpful starting point at understanding what faithful living looks like for Christians. That's great. Next question. Uh, a coworker who is gay is getting married. We're good friends and he knows where I stand on the issues of same-sex marriage. Would you recommend I attend his wedding? You've done a lot of pastoring through this type of thing. Yeah, why don't, why yeah. Um, I, so I think that the, what, what this person says that he knows where I stand on the issue is really important. I, I feel like personally as, as a Christian, I can't, um, I can't support something that is contrary to God's design and what I believe is contrary to God's plan for human flourishing. So same-sex marriage, I believe, is, is contrary to how God created us to experience um, marital intimacy. Um, however, I think that loving people and remaining in relationship with those who are different from us is, is really, really good. So uh, I, I would have no problem personally attending a gay wedding as long as the person that I was uh, attending, you know, at their invitation understood kind of what I believed and, and why I believed it and that it was motivated out of love for them, really. Um, in, in these sorts of situations, we're trying to make a difference, not a point. And oftentimes people are changed more through relationship and through love than, than simply by, um, uh, by cutting them out. So uh, that's my kind of flinch on it. Yeah, it's helpful. Great. Cool. Next question. Next question. Can you tell us a little about Gateway's burden and strategy to reach the unreached missions? I love this question. Why don't you take it again? Oh, gosh. Go for it. Our burden and strategy. Yeah, I mean, we just, just recently were talking as a pastoral team. Um, you know, COVID's been such an interesting kind of reality to try to pastor and lead through this year. I was just telling my wife, I feel like there's been so much sideways energy from, from a leadership standpoint in the church this year. And it, it, unfortunately, at times, I think it, it was easy to maybe lose our focus on what, why are we here? What do we exist for? And we really do exist for those who have yet to to come to know the Lord and to love the Lord. And so um, we kind of break our, our, our missional focus into three buckets. Uh, we call it home, near, and far. So our home focus would be those that we would invite to attend church um, and hear the gospel, those that we would invite into community with us. Uh, near would be kind of... Um, kind of places that are, that are close by that maybe we could drive to, places like Juarez, Mexico, where we do, uh, we partner with other local churches. Um, and then FAR would be, uh, most of our focus right now is in the country of Turkey. We have a few church planners that we support there and we've been praying through and thinking through how we can be more involved. Um, but those are kind of the, the buckets we, we kind of put these different categories in. Anything you'd add to that? No, on the, even like the category of missions tends to kind of assume like a cross-cultural overseas thing, and that is our main emphasis in Turkey. When it comes to like the, the near 
part. I think one of the things that's implicit in this question that I just want to, I'm not saying the person who asked this is uh, assuming this, but one of the things we tend to assume is that gateway strategy and mission is the pastor's or the leader's strategy and mission. Um, but gateway's burden strategy to reach unreached is whatever our collective membership's burden and strategy to reach unreached is. It's the, probably the primary focus of the way that we hope to reach unreached is faithful congregants, uh, members in the pews or in the seats, we don't have pews, uh, loving their neighbors, um, introducing them to Jesus, welcoming them into their homes, inviting them to church. And so it's, it's our collective, just loving our neighbors in the flow of our day-to-day lives is the primary uh, strategy. Yeah, equip the saints for the work of ministry. We, we do some that. local focused outreach things that Alessi, who helps oversee local outreach, uh, kind of yeah. gives uh, leadership to. Um, those kind of like thing about like big rock versus shotgun kind of approach. So our ordinary shotgun approach is all of us trying to be faithful. Yeah. The big rock stuff is some of the things like boxes for hope or um, boxes of hope that Alessi yeah. leads. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So great. great that could question. be a probably much longer answer, but yeah, it's a little bit there. Okay. Next, next question. How have you personally worked out loving your neighbors well in light of COVID-19? That's wow. a great question. Yeah. Start. Yeah, well, one of the things I liked about, uh, so I would say that part of being pro-life is uh, what I would consider contains the, uh, the uh, precautionary principle, which is like the less you know about something, the more cautious you are about it. And so I do think that um, like participating in, in full lockdowns, kind of preemptively shutting the church down, even before a lot of other churches and the government didn't ask us to, we did. Uh, especially on the front end of this thing before we knew a ton about it and before we knew what safe regathering or at least um, reasonably safe regathering would look like, us kind of doing that, I think was a big part of that, being cautious on the front end. And so I think that was right that we did that. I think personally, the way that um, it's kind of played out is honestly, my wife and I have gone on a lot of walks and we've done a lot of socially distanced meeting our neighbors and I've really enjoyed that. That's been a really a positive outcome of that. Uh, we're doing our best to not be reckless um, at the same time being relationally present to the people that we care about most. Yeah, I love the way this question's framed, loving your neighbors. That's kind of like the, the guiding principle here and, and I really think that's good and healthy. Um, as Christy and I have kind of navigated it, we've, we've, we've tried to create a home environment that's not like riddled with anxiety for our kids. I think that's a way that we've, we've loved our family um, and that they've been able to love those that they come in contact with. Uh, another thing would just be um, trying to lay down personal preference for the sake of others. So we see this kind of Christ-shaped life is sacrificing our own freedoms for the blessing and benefit of the beloved, right? That's what Christ did for us, and that's what we're called to do for others. And so as you think of masks or not masks, that whole thing really should be kind of a, a love-first focus. Um, and so that's that's been a maybe a guiding principle for, for me and my family. Yeah, one additional thing that I think has been helpful is I think that um, Taylor and I have been more conscious about looking for opportunities to be generous with our, our resources than we have maybe in years past. And uh, we've actually found less opportunities than we wanted to, but we've, we've been looking for them more often. It's among our small group, other people, uh, kind of being more uh, constantly aware of other people's need. And so that's actually been a gift to us. Uh, so we're that uh, putting on that lens, looking for opportunities of generosity uh, is something that I think not is, is not going to go away when COVID-19 yeah. goes away, but hopefully something that stays. 
Yeah, one of the really shocking things about this whole deal is how different communities are drastically like impacted differently. So a community like ours, we've, we had a huge outpouring of generosity at the beginning saying, hey, help people, and we're looking around, and there's, there just wasn't a ton of, of need. And yet, other places in the country and other places in the kingdom of God, there were huge needs. And so collectively, as a whole, Redemption Church was able to partner with um, some gospel-believing, faithful churches in some communities that really were ravaged by this, um, by this disease, and we were able to significantly bless them and help them. Uh, there's actually even a video out kind of talking about it, but if you'd like more information about that. But, um, so, yeah, that so, video is on our YouTube page. Yep. We have like a Redemption Church Arizona YouTube page, and there's like a couple of episodes of Inside Redemption. I think we're up to episode five now. I think the last yeah. one was on North Mountain. Yeah. North Mountain. Yeah, but yeah. A couple of them are about a redemption's ability to be generous to other churches in this situation. Yeah. So those those are some thoughts on that. All right. Next question. How long after Jesus' death was the Bible written? Great question. Great question. I'll take that one. Go for it. So the Bible was written um, in sections and chunks, and so uh, probably at least two thirds of the Bible was written way before Jesus was. Uh, dead and risen, and so especially the whole Old Testament was certainly written um, far before then, maybe hundreds of years before. Um, And different parts of the New Testament were written in different seasons, in different uh, distances from his death. Probably the the earliest books that we have are um, the Gospels, or not the Gospels, I mean the the letters of Paul were probably written um, sometime in the uh, 60s, 70s, or 80s in that window, and so each book is... debatably there, so maybe 30 Jesus years. Jesus died in the early 30s. Jesus died so, about 80, 33, yeah. give or take a couple years, it's debatable, but then uh, most of Paul's letters are written uh, probably in the 60s, 70s. Uh, and so those are the closest ones to there. Um, editions of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John uh, were probably, there's like at least parts of it that, um, you know, that they kind of used that were written together that were probably shortly after that. Um, but a lot of them are dated conservatively in that first century window. Yeah, that's great. Next question. How do I respond to friends and family members who insist that I am fighting against God because I, sec- because I accept that Biden won the election? So this isn't necessarily even saying I voted for Biden or I voted for, but I just, I accept that he won the election. How do I fight against the implication that I'm fighting against God? Mm. So that would imply that Trump was God's candidate. Biden's not. There's a lot. There's a lot in that question. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the first, when you're, whenever there's like this tension within family or there's strong values, strong beliefs that are um, existing and they're clashing, I think it's important to really ask more questions and really try to listen for the values behind. Um, like, because uh, someone who's deeply committed to um, a particular outcome, there's usually some some value that feels threatened or some. Um, uh, belief that like there's something at stake that they're nervous about. And so a lot of times you can actually connect with them on um, the, the source of anxiety. So there's probably like some deep sense of like, I am nervous or anxious about the direction of this country. And very likely you may be able to say, I am too. And here are the reasons why. So that actually creates an opportunity for a connection um, rather than just conflict when you're able to listen for like the to the, the emotion behind the value, or say like I'm 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 I would I really want to believe in the ele- election integrity. I really believe integrity matters. I believe integrity matters too. I I also want there to be like I, I care about uh, integrity, and so you can connect at the value level, even though the way those values manifest 
um, may play out differently. And so I think first trying to reframe it from like a response argument to like how can I connect with them in this moment, um, listening for the values can be a, a big deal. I think the second thing, which is probably a larger theological um, issue, is there are a variety of, so here's the thing about kind of um, the, the mass media or the mass evangelical kind of community is you will always be able to find some pastor somewhere or some PhD somewhere who will tell you exactly what you want to hear about something. That's just true. Within the information internet age, you'll find someone somewhere who will tell you exactly that all of your presuppositions and your assumptions You don't are even true. have to find it. Facebook will find it for you. Yeah. Like the, the, algorithms the algorithm of social media will find what you want to hear and the, give it to you. Yeah, they, 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 they've algorithmed it such that they'll put the right thing for me. So I think that that matters a ton. Um, and so there's something that makes me deeply nervous about our current moment is where people, so Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about how there are secret things that belong to the Lord. This is called the doctrine of God's um, secret will. Um, uh, there's also God's revealed will, which is what God has clearly given to us in the scriptures. So this is God's revealed will. We have it. We know what's coming. We know what happened. We know what will happen. But there's God's secret will, which almost always includes what exactly God is doing here in this moment. And there's a group of people um, all over the place, and I'm not just saying in this situation, but whether they're leftists or they're right-wingers or they're toppers or downers, I don't know, know, all over the map people who are saying, I know exactly what God is doing in this moment. And that makes me nervous because I don't think we know exactly what God is doing in this moment. I think we need to be very cautious about becoming false prophets and speaking on behalf of God and saying, I know what God is doing here in this moment. And so um, that's like a larger doctrine of revelation about how God speaks to his people um, that I think matters a ton. And so I just generally get uh, nervous when people start saying, I know exactly what God is trying to do um, in this moment in world history, in this people, in this place. And that just... uh, I don't think that's a biblical view of how God's will works. Um, I think we can say what we want. Um, and so saying, I think it's totally fair for Christians to say, um, I'm skeptical about the results of the election and here's why. I think it's dangerous if people at Redemption Gateway are saying things like, God told me that there was election interference. I, I just think that's a dangerous way of reasoning and a dangerous way of um, letting that stuff play out. Yeah, yeah. There's. There's a lot there. That's good. Let's uh, keep rolling. The Bible says we should follow the governor's guidance, and the government and health authorities say we should wear masks in the public. Are the Christians who are not wearing masks in the public disobedient to God? Great question. Um, Yeah, I have talked with Christians on kind of all sides of this issue. Um, I've talked with Christians who really feel like they're loving their neighbor best by not wearing a mask. I've talked with Christians who feel like they're loving their neighbor well by wearing a mask. Um, As it pertains to this topic in the church, um, we've actually received from from the government an exemption on the mask mandate. Um, And so uh, as it relates to what we do here, uh, thankfully we've we've got some freedom there. but I think, generally speaking, we want to try to obey the, the governing authorities to the degree that we feel like we can and still honor God's heart and God's law. So anything you'd add? One of the things that's interesting about the 
like a, a view of the government that would be like a statist, whereas the government has no limits to its power versus a yeah. biblical view of government, yeah. as the government does have a limited sphere. Right. I think the Bible allots for it, um, that it's like to punish evil and promote the good. Um, and so it's active in punishing evil and passive in promoting the good or the way that that works out. That's, I think that's Second Peter um, 2.13 or 3.13 or somewhere in there. Somewhere in there. Um, but this whole idea of the way the government's ought meant to function. And so there are um, places to where the, govern the governor or the government would speak and say, here's what you need to do, that I think Christians can say that's outside of the scope of the government's um, responsibility or bounds. Yeah. And so I think that that matters too. I think discerning exactly where that line is is difficult, but I think considering that line matters. Yeah. Yeah, it's been challenging for sure. That's good. All right. Next question. What does the Bible teach about depression and suicide? Um, I'll start it off and then you can, you can hit clean up. Um, uh, depression's a real thing. We see it even in the scriptures. There's even, uh, I think of First Kings with, uh, with Elijah, it was just, he, he experienced it. There's, there's moments in, in other places where we see uh, biblical characters experiencing depression and sadness. Um, Suicide itself is not something that, that we would ever condone in any way. Um, we believe that it's the Lord's the author of life. He gives life and he takes it away. And um, we would certainly want to be uh, sympathetic to those who are suffering and try to relieve pain and suffering however we can. But um, that would be just kind of my first general flinch on it. Yeah, I think that the language of the Psalms in particular. So there's kind of three big categories in the book of the Psalms. There's Psalms of uh, disorientation, uh, um, orientation and reorientation. And so it's kind of like the way that um, different scholars will break up the categories of Psalms. And so as many as almost a hundred of them would be Psalms of disorientation or reorientation. That is when you're in a disoriented place, um, like the deep emotional depths. And so Psalm 88 is uh, certainly a, a Psalm that would speak to like, uh, crushing depression or anxiety. I just want to read some of it. Um, it. This is one of the Psalms that it kind of is dark and stays dark. It doesn't really kind of turn positive. It kind of stays there. Um, my soul is full of troubles. My life draws near to Sheol, that is to the grave, like in the ground. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man with no strength. I'm like the one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more. They're cut off. So he's saying, like, I feel like a dead person. Like, people don't remember me. People don't consider me. Um, I have no energy. I have no life. And he says to the God, you put me in the depths of this pit, um, in the regions of dark and deep. Um, your wrath is heavy upon me. You overwhelm me with these waves. You've caused my companions to shun me. You've made me a horror to them. And so this, this kind of um, spiritual depression is certainly there. Um, biochemically, you know, we're created beings that God made serotonin. He made dopamine. He created the uptakes, the uptake systems. And so all of these things matter. And so there are like biochemical um, bodily realities of depression. There's also the um, spiritualities of depression where we're whole beings. There's not like a category of there's spiritual over there and then there's um, chemical over there, but it's kind of all, all in one thing. There's just different degrees of severity. And so depression is real and it's dark and it can be 
you can feel stuck there. But I would say that when you do feel depressed, at a minimum, um, there are biblical authors who have felt like you feel. One of, the, one of the lies that we can feel in depression is nobody gets me, nobody understands me. Uh, and it can feel like that oftentimes because maybe my closest friends and family don't get me to understand me. That might just be true. Um, but people who wrote the scriptures, and, and then by definition, the spirit writing through people who wrote the scriptures, the spirit understands because um, he searches hearts and he knows what is the mind. Yeah. Yeah, I think one of the things that, one of the lies that the culture will tell us is it's not okay to be sad. But mm-hmm. sadness is like, that's part of normal life. So what, like, we'll even tell our kids, like, it's okay, to be, it's okay to be sad sometimes. Like, that's all right. You're allowed to not be happy all the time. And I think one of the reasons why suicide feels like the only option sometimes for folks in, in our culture is because they've been told that true life, a life worth living is a happy life. And if they're experiencing sadness, especially a season of sadness, they feel like it's not, that's not worth living. And yet the reality is the Lord meets us in our grief and in our pain in our sadness. He meets us in difficulty. That's what we just talked about in this uh, Joy to the World question mark series, right? And so uh, I think part of what we can do as we engage with the biblical story is to kind of normalize the, the full range of emotion, um, depression, sadness, um, low places, are places where we can meet the Lord. It's okay to live there, and it's okay to be there with others and enter into that with others. Yeah. So. On, a, on just kind of a final word on suicide, too. Like, I, I have tremendous empathy for those who feel trapped. Like, I've heard it described that suicide is like feeling like you're in a bur- burning building and the only option is to jump. Yeah. And so I think that um, standing at a distance in judgment of people who have um, attempted or committed suicide is dangerous for us Christians. At the same time, like I'm, I'm nervous about a culture that's um, trying to use language like becoming victims of suicide. Like I do think that our agency as people made in the image of God who have the capacity to subdue and have dominion, um, who, who can with the spirit have self-control, um, I do think suicide is, going back to the Ten Commandments question, is, a, is a one of breaking the Ten Commandments. It is murder. It, and, and I don't want us to um, get to a position where we feel like we're, we're victims of our own uh, choices. Um, and our, our choices and our agency matters a ton. Um, that being said, like a, a temptation to suicide is a temp- like a temptation to any sin. Um, it's always best to confess temptation before we commit the sin. And so there's people who will love and support and gather around um, all, us all the time. And so often suicide can be like an, a component of feeling like a lack of self-efficacy, like feeling like I can't make a difference in my life, like I'm kind of a passive participant and I'm trapped in a victim in my life. And, and part of that re- regaining of agency uh, is something that we can help you with. And so if that's like you in this room, um, which I'm, I'm presuming based on just the numbers that there's people in here who are feeling deeply depressed and possibly suicidal, that if that's you, we'd love to help. We'd love to talk through it. And I know that uh, that's like one of the hardest things to do is to say, hey, I need help, but I do think it's, it's biblical, um, you know, to call out to the Lord and to call out to the Lord being the church is the body of Christ, to call out to the body of Christ and ask for support. Yeah, we need each other. That's good. Next question. The Bible says that tithing is important, but does the full 10% need to be given directly to the church or could it be given to another organization or person in need? What are your thoughts on children, teens, people without a job giving? Great question. Well, you're the money guy. I'm the money guy. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I get to oversee uh, the finances here at Gateway. Um, 
Yeah, I think, so personally, I think 10% is a great kind of starting point. And my personal conviction is we give, we give at least 10% of, of our income to the church and then kind of over and beyond that. Uh, we actually give a little more than 10 to the church and then we give other places beyond that. Um, that's important to me because I feel like the church is God's plan A for reaching the world. And a lot of other ministries are, are great kind of supplemental um, supplemental opportunities to serve and love and, and share the love of Christ. But uh, really the church is, is the community that Christ formed, right? When he was here, he formed a community and then that community grew. And so um, I really believe in investing in the local church as God's primary plan for the kingdom of God spreading across the globe. Um, now, as it relates to like specific percentages, um, I don't, I don't think that the scriptures would, would lay a particular number on us. I think 10% is probably on the low side of what, what would be, um, just, uh, what would kind of come out of a, a normal and natural reading of, of the scriptures. Uh, in the Old Testament times, the percentage was much higher when you add together kind of all the different tithes and offerings that people gave. And we've got the spirit, we've received Christ and his generosity. And so kind of the argument would be how much more should we, you know, having in, in this current position, how much more should we give to the Lord? So um, those are some thoughts. Yeah, the Old Testament as it relates to like command, people like to think of the Old Testament laws like a bunch of like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. But there is like this command to give 10% to the Lord's house. And there's also these commands to not harvest the corner of your field so that the poor could, um, you know, take what they needed. And so, like, the, this kind of posture of generosity is something that God commanded his people um, from the beginning in, in the Old Testament. And so I think it's more kind of like trying to take that posture of generosity. I, I do think, uh, and this is not something I'm willing to say is, like, the church's position, but I think is kind of like this Malachi 3, bring your tithe into my house. So I do think that there's a kind of a thrust in the scriptures of giving 10% to the Lord's house and then a, a adopting a generous mentality um, beyond that. Yeah, I think there, there is something to be said for losing control of your money. So um, when you give to the church, you're, you're, you're giving away control of what happens to that. And then the elders collectively kind of decide how we're going to apportion and spend the budget each year. Um, and so I, I know folks who just prefer to give individually. Uh, and yet there's not really like a surrender in that. You're still kind of maintaining control of everything. And I think there's something good in our hearts to go, hey, I'm this portion I'm giving to the Lord. I'm giving to the people that God's kind of appointed to make those decisions. And I'm, I'm going to trust the Lord and trust them with how that money gets spent. So I and, think there's, there's a place for that. And even when Jesus comes back to tithing in the New Testament, he's, he's condemning the, the, the Pharisees for he says, yeah, you tithe, so you obey that part of the law, but there, that's a lesser part of the law, but there's a greater part of the law, which is doing justice and mercy. And so Jesus isn't telling them to stop tithing. He's telling them that if tithing's your minimum, uh, you're not doing good. Like you need to be pursuing justice and mercy in, in your day-to-day -day lives all the time. And so Jesus himself kind of upholds tithing and, and commands folks to uh, really look for generosity. And that's probably a way that I feel like COVID-19 again has been a blessing to me is I feel like I've adopted more of a looking for opportunities to be generous beyond just I did the obedient 10% thing. And so I think that's been good for my heart this year. Yeah, one last thing. I'd just say this church has been incredibly generous over the years. We're uh, going on like 12 years now of this, this church here, um, 10 years for redemption. 
and it's been truly remarkable to see how the Lord has provided through your generosity. Uh, we've been able to to do a lot, bless a lot of people, um, and it's just really been humbling. So thank you, uh, thank you for trusting us, and we we really do take kind of stewardship of those resources seriously. So we're we're grateful. And one of the funny things about that too is, so I've been on staff now about four. Um, four years and Lucas preached on tithing once and I think right now is the second most we've ever talked about it in four years so I just think that there's just the spirit creates generous people and I'm grateful for that for for all of you amen amen all right next question how would you define the terms church hurt and spiritual abuse and how can we as believers help those who would say they have experienced these things Mm. why don't you take that yeah so I'll just first kind of define abuse because that's probably the most clinical term that's up there or at least formal term. And so I would understand abuse as like a pattern um, over time of control or oppression or manipulation that uh, causes people to do what they wouldn't do for the benefit of the person in power. And so that kind of spiritual abuse would be like a lording it over, um, which First Peter 5 forbids. Like if, mm-hmm. if someone, an elder or a pastor is lording over their authority, um, that's a problem. Or there's like a, you got to do this or else. Uh, so that's kind of a spiritual abuse where people's like their, their agency or their dignity is eroded over time. Um, maybe they start to feel like they can't trust themselves to make decisions. They have to trust the leader to make decisions. And so... There's a variety of uh, forms of that, especially as it relates to like kind of intense, heavy individual shepherding where like um, the details of people's lives are being managed by church authority. Uh, I would kind of describe some of those things as spiritual abuse, not even including like someone leveraging their position or power for, uh, like when you start talking about um, leaders in authority who are sexually abusing or financially abusing people, um, that's kind of even a more obvious, like what that looks like situation. Um, it's evil, God hates it. You know, the way that Jesus uses power is to give it away. He, he, he dies. He does not consider quality God thing to be grasped, but he makes himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and he serves. And so uh, spiritual abuse is so far away from a Christ-like use of power um, that it matters a ton. Church hurt is probably a less um, like formal diagnosis. And I would say that like, I know I've caused church hurt. You know, church hurt, oh, yeah. church hurt can happen from you uh, didn't follow up um, when I, on, my, on the anniversary of my spouse's passing, church hurt can be, uh, I was out of sight, out of mind, and you didn't reach out to me. Um, church hurt can be, uh, you misunderstood what I was saying and used it against me. Um, church hurt can be, uh, the church taught something that I just felt personally hurt by. In that sense, uh, we're probably all hurt by preaching, at least on a regular basis, in a good way, right? Oof, that's yeah, stung. The scriptures say that it actually cuts us. Yeah, the scriptures God's word cut us. Cut, that's so painful. There, so there can be good church hurt in the sense that, like, I hear something I don't like, and, it, and at first it hurts and I don't like it, but over time God works it out and uses it for good. Uh, so I just want to say that these, like, spiritual abuse is real. It happens. I pray that it's not happening or never happens here. Um, I would guarantee you church hurt happens here sometimes because we... The best part about church is the worst part about church, which is that sinners are welcome. And so we show up and we sin against each other, and every time we sin against each other, it's church hurt. Mm -hmm. A lot of times church hurt specifically means when a pastor or a a person on staff sins against someone, which happens. I just want to be honest with you. And I hope that we repent and take responsibility when that does happen. Um, One of the 
great provisions of the Lord uh, for in terms of like how churches are led is that we, we really believe in plurality as a kind of a biblical um, directive. So uh, there's, there's no one on our staff or in our elder team who has absolute authority. The decisions are made in plurality uh, across the board and appeals can be made to plurality as well, uh, which I think is, is really, really good. So, um, As far as helping those who have been experienced those things, because there's a level of church hurt that I do think we have to, uh, and I don't want to be prescriptive with this, but uh, every believer will have church hurt. And there's a measure of that that we just have to say, until Jesus comes back, we will sin against one another. And we need to develop uh, the ability. I think one of the verse, uh, things is, uh, you know, love overlooks a multitude of wrongs. There is a level of that that I think we need um, where we're not kind of just chronically being super reactive about every time someone's in, but like, hey, hey, I think this was wrong what you did to me and um, it hurt when you did that. I think you sinned against me and we need to be quick to own it, repent, ask for forgiveness and that's part of the deal. Then there's like different levels of church hurt where there's serious betrayal of trust um, and then a level above that where there is like um, people in positions of power, um, you know, using people. And, and so each responding to each one of those things is different, right? If someone just gets hurt, uh, we wanna help them work through, hey, let's Matthew 18, go to the person, tell them you were hurt. Let's, let's kind of do this process. If someone's uh, like seriously has like betrayals of trust, there's gonna be um, a rebuilding process that needs to play out that may take more time and work. And if there's people in positions of power um, using people, um, that's a different situation as well. And uh, you know, at every level, there's probably like a need, need for a bigger circle, right? If there's people in positions of power here who are using people, we need to be able to escalate that and uh, you know, come to pastors and elders and make sure that's corrected and, um, in that regard. And if there's yeah. loss of trust, there's probably a process that needs to be laid out. Um, but on like kind of the ordinary levels, we're going like, hey, people sin, you know, and we know that it's biblical let's take a step towards reconciling in the small things that, that yeah. matters a ton. Just one practical point on how you can help someone who says they've experienced these things. Uh, many times what you could do is point them to the, the, the source of the conflict. So um, what's generally helpful, this might not always be the case, but generally speaking, when a brother sins against you, go to the brother, show him your fault. If he repents, you've won him back. If not, you take someone with you and go to that person. And so, um, you know, too, too much sideways dialogue that doesn't involve or get back to the person that's the potential perpetrator or wrongdoer in the situation doesn't help anyone. Um, and so I'd say, you know, have, have a few trusted confidants that can help you see things clearly and speak into a situation. And then as much as you can, try to go to the person that you feel has hurt you and, and, and work to reconcile. Yeah, and if that doesn't happen, you create a second layer of church hurt, yeah. which is I sin against you, and then you gossiped about me and slandered me, and yeah. now there's now reconciliation is getting increasingly complicated because now we're throwing grenades at each other, right. and now the layers of um, it's just getting worse. Yeah, that's good. Right, we have time for one more question, so yeah. let's make it a good one. Let's do it. I'm a little unclear on the Trinity. Can you give a quick explanation? Great. Yes. Yeah, so the, here's the simplest doctrine of the Trinity kind of answer. Um, so first I'd say if you're a little unclear in the Trinity, make peace Join with that. Join the club. Yeah, just make peace with that lack of clarity. That's okay. Uh, if we could invent God, we would have invented one that we could grasp, but we didn't. So he is what he is, and so our minds. And 
his mind, we can't grasp it. So, so there's one God and he's three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and that makes, and so then when it comes to the doctrine of Jesus, there's, he is one person with two natures. He's fully God and he's fully man. And so the one and three and the two and one, um, one God, three persons, and Eternal. Jesus yeah, they're all eternally God. None of them is less than God. None of them became God. None of them will not become God, but they're all eternally God. Um, they all share in this power, share in his majesty, share in his divinity. Um, and the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, took on flesh. And so he added a nature to his divine nature. So Jesus is one person with two natures, fully God, fully human. So one person, two natures, one God, three persons. There's a lot of beauty in that, that... I think you could unpack for a lifetime, but that's a great, great summary. So first question, what are your hopes for Gateway in 2021? Great that's question. That's a pretty fun question. That is a fun question, man. One of the, one of the things I've been saying uh, kind of internally is it feels like 2020 was a year of fasting, and I'm hoping that 2021 becomes a year of feasting. Uh, I know some of you are already feasting, and that's fine. <laughs> some of you are like, well, hope, but I hope that over the course of this year, it becomes a year of feasting, of, of gathering, of connecting, of celebrating. I do hope that those of you who are online or who uh, aren't here, that at some point this year, you'll feel safe to come back and that we can all be together. Anything else? Yeah, I mean, I just hope it's, it felt like there was just a lot of sideways energy this year where we were doing a lot of um, reactive kind of leadership and, and we'd love to get back in the kind of proactive leadership space where we're just sharing the gospel, loving people, reaching out to our community. Um, you know, the whole Jesus thing is, is pretty remarkable. And it, it, the, the Christian, like the biblically shaped Christian community is so different than anything the world offers. Um, and it's something that the world desperately needs. People are grasping at straws, it feels like right now, to try to define meaning and purpose and find joy. And we've, we've got it. And so uh, when we can live that out and invite people into that, um, that's super exciting to me. So I long for that. Great. Next question. How can I evangelize my friends and family without offending them or pushing them away? That's a great question. Um, I'd say just initially um, loving them well, so really knowing them, really listening to them, is, is super important. I think earning a hearing by the, the way that you live your life and the way that you care for and love them uh, is, is, is super important. I think evangelism um, maybe is, is, is more about kind of earning the right to be heard than it is about having the right arguments. Um, you know, when, when someone respects you and, and your family and the way that you love them and, and love others, they're a lot more apt to listen to what you have to say. So um, that might be a place to start. But I think thoughts? having the goal of trying not to offend or push is really good. I also think that the gospel is inherently offensive and yeah. that there's a reality to that that we can't get past. I was just reading in my devotions this morning in John 7 when Jesus says, if you know, they hated me, they're going to hate you. And there's this reality that telling people you're not who you think you are, you're a sinner, and you need to repent. Um, God is God and you're not. It, it, it can be pretty offensive. And so sometimes if we do that in a bombastic or rude or mean way, we're actually like betraying the way that Jesus treats people. And so, but even if we treat people like Jesus treats people, even if we love, even if we have a relationship, 
sometimes telling people the gospel is just inherently offensive. And so uh, the goal of never offending someone uh, can really betray actually the obedience to Christ's command to tell people um, that he's died and risen for their sins. Amen. That's great. Next question. Was the bronze snake in Numbers 21, 4 through 9, idolatry? Why would God have them look to something else to heal them? Wow. Let me just read that story for those (laughs) those of us who aren't familiar with that story. This is Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. I'll just read it. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. Am I in the right place? Yes. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food, no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So the Lord prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who's bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if the serpent bit anyone, they look at the bronze serpent and live. So the story is one where um, God's people are rebelling against the Lord, they're sinning against the Lord, and God sends discipline their way, and the discipline comes in the form of um, physical suffering, and then when they repent, God provides a way for them out of that physical suffering, which is to look at the bronze serpent. So I would say, first of all, it's um, not idolatry because they're, work- they're not worshiping the bronze serpent. They're looking to it. And so idolatry is giving worship or, or love or affection that belongs to the Lord to something else. And so um, God doesn't, and I'll, one, it's not idolatry because they're not worshiping the bronze serpent. Two, it's not idolatry because God commanded it. It's actually obedience. And so when God provides means and we make use of those means, that's not idolatry or false worship. It's actually obedience to the Lord. Similarly, when we take the communion, uh, we're, we're using these means as ways of remembering what God has done. We're not worshiping the elements. If we gathered around and gave worship to the unleavened bread and the juice, that'd be idolatry. That'd be a problem. But rather, they're, they're means that we're um, making use of. Why would God have them look to something else to heal them? Um, partly because God likes physical symbols and God is spirit. And so God likes to tell people, look, this is a now we look to the cross. Um, and this actually, Numbers 21, becomes a symbol of the cross. Um, Jesus says in John 3, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. And so um, Moses, um, Jesus, or God through Moses is actually providing a future picture of looking to Jesus on the cross for the providence of sin. Which is pretty awesome when you think about it. Super cool. Yeah, idolatry is about what your heart is trusting in. And uh, the people were trusting in the means that God had established. And that's kind of this future picture of trusting in the, the final means that God had established yeah. through. Yeah, they the weren't sun. trusting in the bronze thing. They're trusting if I do what the Lord commands, um, yeah. he'll, he'll bless me the way he's commanded. Great question. Next Great question. one. Why has this church prioritized men's and youth ministry over women's ministry this year? Wow. Hmm. That's a, that's a good question. That is a good question. Uh, As someone over men's yeah. and women's ministry. And youth ministry, yeah. And youth ministry. <laughs> Seth's over all the ministries. <laughs> Why don't you answer that? Yeah, so one, I would say um, that's not true. However, I would say I understand why it might look that way. Um, so MOPS, which is Mothers of Preschoolers, decided not to meet 
um, this fall because um, of COVID, and they decided not to meet. Their this leadership spring. decided that. Yeah, their local, their their leadership. So part of it is like even in our oversight of these things, um, we're not dictating terms to like the teams that lead the ministries, uh, and so a lot of us we try to support and resource. So I don't tell mops what to do. Like there's a team of ladies who oversee mops and. They make decisions for MOPS based on what's best for MOPS. And then same with our women's ministry. Um, there's a team of ladies who oversee women's ministry who decide what's best for women's ministry. And so this past fall, um, the women's table leaders decided to decentralize. They didn't gather here. Um, they stayed in their tables um, separately. And basically, it's because of COVID. Uh, that's how that decision was rolled out. Yeah, our men's breakfast also took a break. Yeah, our men's breakfast was, was canceled for a while. We are doing a men's one-day event this this month, today's the last day to register, by the way. So I'm signed up. You're signed up? Yes. That's great. I'm also signed, signed up. All I right. Think, I think I'm signed up. I'm going to be there. So Cool. Uh, so I understand why we look like that way, because women's ministry decentralized and did tables and homes, and MOPS decided not to meet because of COVID. So it's, whereas the men's um, fight clubs, the, the leaders decided to keep meeting, but we did do some online groups. So it might look like that, but that's not actually how it is. Absolutely. Great. It's a good question. Yeah, good question. Next one. What is CRT? Does Gateway have a stance on it? And will any CRT or critical race theory ideology be brought into the church? Very good question. Something that's um, getting a lot of kind of airplay in, in the world right now, especially in the Christian, Christian circles. So you've, you've written on this. You've done a lot of research on this. Yeah, so critical race theory is... Uh, it's kind of become a bit of a boogeyman in the way that folks are trying to talk about justice and racial reconciliation, uh, critical race theory. Most people are concerned about it, are the things that they're concerned about. I, have, I share those concerns. The concerns are that the church would be uh, you know, influenced by secular ideology to the point at which it compromises the gospel and the means of Jesus and reconciliation in Christ as the preeminent and central um, um, mission of the church. And so I share that concern. I do think that you know, doctrine over the course of church history, uh, there is a, uh, a, a pattern of faithfulness and the departure that does matter. And so um, that concern about being faithful to the scriptures and not being unduly influenced by um, secular theories matters. Um, critical race theory is not a body of doctrine or dogma. There's not a critical race theory. There's not um, a single um, like uh, published thing that is like, this is what critical race theory is. Critical race theorists who are mostly humanities professors at um, secular universities uh, debate amongst themselves what critical race theory is. And so we kind of need to recognize that people are saying, uh, is critical race theory there? Is it there? It's basically unhelpful to talk about critical race theory as a whole. What's most uh, impactful and probably most profitable is to talk about which aspects of critical race theory um, are incompatible with scripture um, or compatible with scripture, right? And so when we think about critical race theory, it's important to recognize that some aspects of it and some critical race theorists want to reduce um, people to the groups they belong to, and they want to give um, people um, validity and, and a voice based on the groups that they belong to, and they kind of a, it can kind of descend into like this um, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant males who are heterosexual are the core problem with society, and it's um, white privilege and patriarchy is kind of the, the single cause of all the problems of society. And I don't think society is that simple. I think society is very complex. It's multivariable. And even if you read the New Testament or the Proverbs, um, society is painted as this multifaceted variable 
um, reality. And so um, critical race theory wholesale is not a thing, therefore we can't bring it, because it's not a thing, into, into the church. But there is um, uh, an aspect of it that even like looking back and reading, rereading history and asking the question, um, have we done history correctly, can be a helpful process. And, and that's not necessarily a CRT doctrine in and of itself. I would say that a lot of people that I've seen who are really concerned about critical race theory, um, it can kind of serve as a way of dismissing um, some of the, the uh, experience that non-white people have um, in our current in current reality, and so I do think that like taking a posture of listening and understanding that people have experienced society and churches differently really matters. I don't think that's necessarily critical race theory, um, but I do think the function of CRT skepticism can serve as a way of avoiding uh, really kind of pursuing ethnic reconciliation. So that's a probably longer answer than I wanted to give, um, but I have more to say than what I just said, so. Great. So we'd love, we'd love to talk more if you'd like to, but great question. All right, next question. As you look back and evaluate 2020, what did church leadership do well and what did they do poorly? So church leadership is us and more people than us, but, but we're included in that. Um, gosh, I feel like there, there's always things we've, we, we've done poorly and there's always things we've, I think, done well. But uh, in this year in particular, uh, it's, it, was, it was hard to anticipate how big of an issue certain topics would become. Um, and so uh, critical race theory is actually an interesting one. Um, we, as Redemption Church, are a multi-ethnic church. However, each local congregation has have varying degrees of diversity. And so it's, it's interesting when you try to speak to a church as a whole, and yet people only hear it through kind of the lens of their, their local congregation, um, that, that's that's posed some challenges for us as leaders this year. Um, there, there were some attempts to kind of address some of the response to uh, some of the race-motivated rioting, and even uh, before that, uh, George Floyd's death. Um, and the way, we, the way we do that in a diverse church with multiple congregations has proven challenging at times. Because uh, you've got lots of different people listening in from lots of different perspectives, but those people don't always know each other or understand each other's stories. So, um, so that's been hard. One thing we, we have been and remain committed to is really listening to all the voices in the body of Christ. Um, we really do care how things are impacting people from lots of different backgrounds. Um, and so... I think one of the things we, we could have done better is provide more clarity sooner on what exactly we're, we were saying and we're not saying. I think one of the dangers is letting the tail wag the dog a bit. Um, there have been a lot of just kind of thoughts and ideas and assumptions that have been made, and to try to address every one of those at all times as leaders can be hard. So that's something I think we're still navigating and learning through. Uh, we're trying to do it in a way that honors all of our congregations and all of the kind of approaches and convictions that our leaders across congregations share. So that's a lot of big words that probably isn't super clear, but um, yeah, I would, what would I would you say? say at a minimum, uh, I think stuff that we've done well is honestly a lot of stuff that like Luke does well, which is kind of communicate and clear, and even like the open, close, open, close, all that kind of 
hodgepodge, you know, which I don't think there's any way you could do that well. I think you could just do it less bad because um, it's never happened before. Um, so I, I've, I've been encouraged that even this, like, our, our communication team and our facilities team and our, uh, our kids team who, who kind of bear a lot of the burden of the COVID like difficulty and the ongoing stuff and they just done a really good job uh, on a lot of that stuff. Uh, as far as like stuff we've done poorly, I do think, especially relates to some of the, the race stuff as it relates to policing, um, there has been like language used uh, on a multi-congregational level that was uncareful at a minimum that let, you can't really drop the $5 kind of cultural buzzwords without explaining what you mean. And it kind of let a lot of room, left a lot of room for people to fill in the blanks that uh, hurt a lot of folks. And I think that was our fault. And I regret that. Uh, and yeah, clo filling in those blanks sooner would have been a good move. It would have been wise, but I think there's part of it's the lack of proximity. Uh, it's kind of hard to know how, how much people are feeling stuff. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's been even, really hard not even, being connected yeah, over this year. The whole CRT question is kind of, to some degree, a problem that we created in that when you speak uncarefully and vaguely, people fill in the blanks with stuff. And so uh, we, we do that. We did that. Yeah. Yeah, I've been, I've been really thankful for our staff over this year. They've, they've been extremely flexible, um, and they've laid down their own personal preferences and comforts many, many times in an effort to try to serve the body. It, it may or may not feel that way, but I see it, and I'm super thankful for it. So I think we've done that well this year. Um, I think we manage, so, yeah. Matthew won't say it's Matthew oversees finances. We manage our finances pretty well this year. Like I think uh, March, April, we went like hiring freeze, spending freeze. We don't know where this is going economically. And like that strong conservative financial flinch, I think was really good and healthy. And it turns out that, praise the Lord, it was unneeded. But, you know, in, in hindsight, that was still the right move, I think. And so I think we're going to, you know, in a, in a year that's been economically challenging, we're in a really good position. And a lot of that's been... Matthew's conservative economics. So thanks, man. It's kind of you. Right. Next question: What do you perceive, perceive to be Redemption Gateway's greatest need from the body or members in 2022? Well, I don't predict the future. So thinking ahead. I wonder if they meant 2021. I wonder. Hmm. The world will never know. Yeah. Honestly, I think the biggest need this year as well as next year as well as the year after that is going to be the same thing is and like trying to be a contributing factor in having a faithful pocket of kingdom of god culture like where we love people we, we approach them with curiosity where we're appropriately vulnerable where we draw people out we welcome people in we're hospitable we're kind we're opening our homes um we're speaking the truth in love we're or, you know, love, like, and so this idea of like trying to be a, a faithful pocket of kingdom culture in the midst of a crooked and depraved generation is, is, is important. And so um, churches give a lot of attention to doctrine or, or the content, but the culture or the process of how that doctrine plays out has really having to do with how we treat one another in, in a really big way. And so this is going to be so simple, but that we would really just love the Lord and love one another well in our little constituent pockets, and that includes the way we treat people in our rows, the way we treat people in our small groups. Um, that's pretty basic, but I do think that's year after year, loving one another well is the biggest need. That if you're going, how can I can help? And it's like, well, be a loving person who's in community here. That's the most simple thing. Yeah, yeah, and, and a, a great way to do that is to be engaging with people who are different than you. 
So um, many of us live in echo chambers, and that doesn't help us kind of love across barriers well. And yet that's like when you look at the life of Jesus, that's pretty much all he did was cross lines, cross barriers, and love people that were different than him. Um, that's what sets the church apart, is that we, we are unified in the midst of our diversity. And the world is supposed to look at that and go, how is that possible? Um, but if we're all listening to the same voices, uh, that, that gets, it, it gets harder for that to, to happen. So uh, one of the things that I just try to do is listen to a lot of different voices, different opinions, different perspectives, and do it with discernment, do it in community, ask the spirit to guide, but, um, but, but really try to seek out and, and assume that, man, my tribe, I don't have it all figured out. There's a lot more out there that we can learn from, so. That's great. Next question. Is Calvinism Arminianism of first importance for redemption? Great. I'll start this off. Uh, no, it's not of first importance, but it is important uh, to us. We believe that it's God who saves sinners. That's kind of what we ask you to agree to if you want to become a member at this church. Um, but we do believe there's a, there's a decent amount of mystery in the scriptures as to how God's sovereignty and our personal responsibility interact. In fact, the Bible would say that we are absolutely responsible for the decisions we make, and God is absolutely sovereign over all of it. Um, and those are both key um, and important doctrines that we, that we can't let go. Um, so, so yeah, not first importance, but, but also pretty important. Yeah, and for those who don't know, Calvinism kind of tends to emphasize God's um, providence or his ability to control uh, history, and Arminianism tends to emphasize uh, human free choice, and so that's kind of what those two things are associated with and what Matthew's getting at. I have nothing else to add. Cool. Next question. How is Gateway doing financially? Has giving gone down? Great question. I was hoping someone would ask this. Um, I was wonder. Do people think about this? I think about it a lot. Uh, we're doing fairly well overall. We're, we're doing we're doing well. Um, giving has gone down significantly in the last quarter, um, and I'm not entirely sure why. We've done some reports and run some some metrics and stuff, but. Um, it's so interesting. It's really been a hard year to, to even evaluate who attends this church because we have an online uh, constituency now. We have in-person folks. I don't like that word, constituency. Sorry. We're, Sorry. Not, we're not, not a political a body. <laughs> political. Okay. Online family members. Yes. Thank you. That's good. Yeah, that's go. good. Um, but yeah, so the, the first half of the year, giving was incredibly strong. When the first kind of wave of COVID lockdowns happened, people, people really stepped up and gave quite a bit, and we're so thankful for that. Um, that's what's made this year uh, a lot less of an anxious Even in God's kind of providence, Luke taught on tithing, which is the first time he taught on tithing right. in four years since I've been here. Yeah, and a bunch like of a people. A couple of weeks before yeah. the, the lockdown happened. Yeah, a bunch of folks took the 40-day the tithe challenge. And 90 day, I think. 90 day, yeah, sorry. 40 I'll days. stop correcting you so word much. Or number. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, we're doing okay. I am, to, just to be honest, I'm a little concerned about next year because of the dip in giving uh, over the last quarter. Um, but we've got some contingency plans. We've got uh, reserves and, and some other options. So I, d I don't think it's like a dire situation. But we, we do appreciate your ongoing support and generosity. It, it really... It really matters, so. Sweet. Next question. 
What is the church's stance on divorce and remarriage? That's a good question. Uh, so there's a lot of details to this question. The, the sh- simplest one is um, we support remarriage when the divorce was biblical and we'll perform those marriages. Uh, so uh, one of the questions is, uh, you know, is there's different positions on when someone's been divorced, should they get remarried? Because uh, there's some folks who have the, what's called the permanence view, you know, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Um, therefore, even if you legally divorce, you're still married in God's eyes. Um, we, we have people at this church with that view. Um, we, as a, we as a church don't teach that view. Um, and then there's kind of on down the line to no-fault divorce. We, you know, we didn't like the same football team, so we got divorced. I don't think that ever really happens, but theoretically, you know, people just get divorced. But when, when divorces were biblical, which we kind of see three causes for um, biblical divorce, kind of the three A's, you could call it, you know, um, adultery, abandonment, and abuse. Uh, so when divorces were biblical, we support remarriage after those divorces. Yeah, we, we really do want to work with you and talk through this stuff because not, not, no situation is easy. Um, so if, if this is a personal question, like if it's specific to a particular situation, we'd love to talk with you about it. And especially, I guess, in our current cultural moment, you know, there's uh, even quantifying, you know, like when... A lot of people get divorced before they become Christians or become Christians, and there's different degrees of like strength of faith or knowledge of the scriptures. So even awareness of God's command matters a ton. Uh, and like like Matthew said, like this is just not a theoretical question. I know like the the divorce is really common in the church, and a lot of divorces were like were great and they were a blessing and they needed to happen because there was adultery, abuse, or abandonment. And other divorces were less great, you know, and so we all kind of walk out in, in varying degrees of faithfulness in that. So if, if you want to process through this personally, we'd love to talk. Yeah. Next question. How should parents deal with children who are struggling with their sexuality? Yeah. Great question. Um, you're kind of writing the paper on this right now. Yeah. So I think... One, I'm going to say I have a one-year-old who has yet to struggle with his sexuality. So I'm, uh, I'm speaking from the absence of personal experience in, in that regard. Um, I have talked to a lot of parents who have tried to process through this, both um, parenting through pubescence in and of itself. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard different wise people say that, you know, pubescence is a gift to parents in their 40s to disorient them and make them go through trials again. Uh, so you can... So to say that, I would say that on, there is a reality to like God has designed your children for you so that you can be sanctified and grow as well. And so seeing it as only your, your child's crisis and not something that God is inviting you into uh, would, would be a mistake. God is inviting you into something as your, as your child develops and grows and struggles and goes through things. And so even receiving the struggles or doubts or questions of your child as a gift from the Lord to you so that you can grow. Um, matters a ton. Um, secondly, I would say that uh, loving as a, as a picture of God's unconditional love matters tremendously, um, but even God's unconditional love to us as his people um, does not come without boundaries. It does not come without instruction. does not come without correction. does not come without discipline. And so um, being able to love unconditionally and not chastise or cast out or uh, or do it matters a ton. I would say that we have um, various uh, like support groups in the church of folks who are trying to parent through these really difficult issues who would love to like 
because again, no situation is the same. And so being able to connect with other parents who are trying to do this well um, in, in fear of the Lord and, and loving well matters a ton. Um, one other thing I would just say is that like the world's um, reduction of human identity to being able to act at will on sexual desires is just not a path to human flourishing. And so I just, I think that there's like a, a bad view of what it means to be human that's like a real pandemic in our culture, which is that like all we are is our physical desires and instincts and to therefore not act on them is to deny someone um, identity and reality and to deny them um, humanity. And I do think that that is like an oppressive dogma um, that is in our cultural moment that is act on your sexuality or be oppressed. And so I do think that the way of Jesus is liberating and that it says that you are so much more than your sexuality or so much more um, than your sexual orientation or your desires or your recurring um, habits, that there's this broad picture of what it means to be human that's so much bigger than sexuality. And so whereas like, you know, everything since Sigmund Freud has reduced sexuality to um, the, the locus point of what it means to be human. So our King and Culture podcast that Luke and I do yeah. um, talks about this kind of at length. Um, so again, I'm not, I haven't had to parent anyone through this, and so I just know it's hard. Uh, but it's not altogether different than parenting someone who um, is you know, questioning um, the scriptures in a variety of other ways. So there is, there is similarity to parenting through other things in world history. So I don't want to fall into the, yeah. the myth of our current culture moment, which is sexuality is this totally, completely different category. Yeah. Yeah. I do think the family is where God intended the primary instruction on this to take place. And so I know, I actually know parents who are waiting to discover what their child's sexual orientation is. And I, I actually would reject that as, a, as a, a way of parenting and say, no, it's your job to kind of model and show what it is to be a healthy uh, man or healthy woman and have a healthy marriage and, and kind of to, to lead and instruct kids is a good thing. Uh, it's something that they need. Uh, and yet, um, I, I think that we use a phrase here called no love center to kind of give wisdom to our, uh, our mentors on how to, how to make disciples. And if your kids don't feel known and loved, you can try to center them on the truth all day long and it won't matter to them. So uh, that's the order, is parents need to know their kids, like really understand who they are and what they're struggling with and take the time to listen. Those kids, as best as we can, need to feel loved by us. And then we have lo we'll have lots of opportunity to center them on uh, the truth of God's word for their good, right? Mm -hmm. we, want, we want their blessing, um, not, not some sort of like, just restrict you for the sake of random yeah. rules. I would say that even the church's kind of vision for sexuality, not even churches, the biblical vision for sexuality um, is remarkably countercultural. And if we think that people are going to, you know, I think about the big three things of sex, money, power, you know, that's like, and those are like the big three idols in every cultural moment. And so if people are really trying to honor the Lord with their sex, their money, or their power, that's like when God's really got a hold of their heart. And so I do think that if we're going to try to make um, sexuality the issue of first importance, I do think sexuality is extremely important, but I do not think it is of first importance in the gospel sense. I do think that trying to recognize that if you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, why would you listen to him on sexuality? And so trying to help people be reconciled to God first before they're reconciled to their bodily sexuality, I think does matter in terms of order.
Absolutely. Amen. Amen. Next question. What is redemption's stance on songs by churches like Bethel, Elevation, Hillsong, etc., who hold to controversial doctrines? Great question. Just out of curiosity, how many of you have heard this topic brought up? Okay. Thanks. That's helpful. Um, yeah, we've, we've uh, definitely thought this through and in, engaged with it uh, with our leaders. Um, my flinch personally as a worship leader, and I think our flinch as a leadership team would be to evaluate um, whatever tool it is that we decide to use kind of on its own merits, um, rather than try to trace its origins and critique it based on where it came from. Uh, I think Augustine said uh, the line dividing good and evil runs through the heart of every man. And so you can always find good and evil at the heart of anything that man has created. You see the image of God, what's true and good and beautiful, and then you can also find um, darkness as well. And so um, as a pastor of this church, I feel convicted to, to spend the majority of my energy um, shepherding this church and evaluating this church, um, not, not other churches. So if there are people from this church who have questions about other churches that, that impact their, uh, their discipleship, then, then maybe we'll, we'll go into some of that. But um, generally speaking, we want to sing songs and promote songs that, uh, that form people in Christ-like character. So stuff that exalts and glorifies Jesus um, is really important to me. So I don't know, what would you add? Yeah, I'd say this. So uh, Charles Spurgeon, who is a good old Reformed, kind of the first megachurch guy, he's got that big beard. I don't know if you guys, you can look him up, but he's wrote some great stuff. But he, their church put together uh, a hymnal, which was um, put together, uh, you know, a couple hundred years ago. And here's what he says about the songs they included, which is really kind of the heart of our church as well. Um, I just researched this the other day. Um, I don't know how I stumbled upon it, but here I am. So, <laughs> it's great. I love it. The area of our research has been wide in the bounds of existing religious literature, American and British, Protestant and Romish. He means that Roman Catholic. Ancient and modern, whatever may be thought of to our taste, we have used it without prejudice and a good hymn has not been rejected because of the character of its author or the heresies of the church in whom the hymnal first occurred. So long as the language and the spirit commended in the hymn to our, our heart, we included it and believe that we have enriched our collection hereby. So he's kind of saying, we, a song was written by a Roman Catholic, we put it in because we thought the song was good, not because we think the Roman church was good. And so I think that trying to evaluate songs on themselves apart from is kind of our, our deal. All right, we got time for two more questions. Great. Does prayer move the hand of God? Mm -hmm. Oh, man, I would say gloriously yes. Yeah. I mean, by God's grace, he's, he says, I'm a good father. Come to me with your requests, right? Uh, Jesus, in multiple places, has said that. Um, yeah. Yeah. God responds to his people. Amen. You can't, every, you read the Bible left to right, you just see God actively working in response to his people all the time. And so uh, it's pretty dangerous if you kind of fall into like a form of uh, hyper-sovereignty-ism where, yeah, it's like fatalism, determinism, where God's not responding to his people. Uh, that's just, uh, it's, it might like, you, you get there by reading philosophers and theologians, but you can't get there by reading the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. Next question. We're so thankful for the leadership of this church. How can we pray for you and encourage you and your families this year? Wow, mm. what a humbling question. Um, 
Thanks for that. Uh, well, you got anything? Uh, I'm a first-time parent, so those of you who know what that is, then you know that. I noticed I had some toddler marks on my jacket, which is <laughs> code for slobber. Um, yeah. And doing that is good. Uh, you know, we have a great marriage. Love my son Jay. You know, at some point we'd like to add more. Uh, yeah, honestly, like the worst thing in my life right now is I'm trying to write a dissertation and I just hate it. It's crushing my soul. If you ever need someone to complain about something, you can ask me, how's your dissertation going? And I'll sinfully complain to you about it. That's uh, very personal. I'd love prayer for that. Uh, honestly, you know, this past year was pretty tough, especially like June, July. It was like probably the first time I thought, man, being a pastor is the worst. Um, I'd rather do something else. And so people talk about what is your goal, you know, and I was, someone asked me, what's your goal for 2020? And I was like, to make it and still love, love my job. And I do right now. And so I just, I, I want to keep growing in affection for you all, not the, in theory, but really in relationship. The more I get to know people at this church, the more I love this church. Um, yeah, that's yeah. great. Um, I think just love us, treat us like normal people. Uh, expect that we're going to make mistakes. Um, you know, you can pray for me. I, I'm a pretty selfish person, just just naturally in the flesh. And uh, loving five kids and a and a wonderful wife well is doesn't always come easy to me. And so I just need a lot of grace and a lot of. Um, I mean, one of the prayers that I pray often is that the Lord would just fill me up with his love so I could pour it out on my family. Um, so that's a, that's a, that'd be a big one. But yeah, but overall, I, I think you are a great encouragement and a great blessing. And I mean, the, I, I'm, I'm personally like super encouraged when you just engage with us in, in worshiping our Lord. Like I, I love that when I get to lead and you're raising your hands and you're singing and your hearts are united together in... Um, just love for our Savior, like that, yeah. that is super encouraging. Uh, and that's why I do this, is I think Jesus is a big deal and I want people to be excited about him. So when you join into that, there's nothing more encouraging for me, so. Yeah, I really honestly wouldn't want to be a pastor anywhere else. Someone asked me that a couple weeks ago. You know, do you like what you do? And I was like, I don't know. I love where I do it though. And, and I, I love you guys and I Amen. love the team we have here. Thanks. So, cool. First question. How has your character stretched this past year as a pastor? Hmm. Great question. Norman. I'll go first, yeah. Character stretched. Uh, so I think the challenges of trying to make decisions that affect a lot of people based on really incomplete information was super frustrating, especially with the COVID stuff, I'd say. Uh, you know, kind of the first time having to make a lot of the choices that we've made and both in terms of closing and reopening and coming back and not coming back. And there's just not a lot of information. I mean, not information that was satisfying to me, but you still have to make a choice and pick. And so that was frustrating. And I'd say also I've, I have a lot of uh, people I'm pretty close with at this church. Um, and there's just been a lot of contentious stuff. And so I've had like more disagreements with really close friends, the vast majority of which have remained really close friends, but just staying in that tension and not kind of just trying to like withdraw or, 
minimize other people's concerns. So I think those for me personally, the, the decisions thing and then the disagreements thing. Yeah, yeah, mine are similar. Uh, my mom, who's actually sitting right over there, used to say, uh, put the best construction on everything. So when, when you have a lack of information, try to, try to build the best possible story, not the worst possible story out. And uh, this year has been a year of building out stories to try to explain things that we don't always have all the information on. Uh, and I've, I've definitely experienced um, some of the negative effects of that. And I think I've also participated in that in a, in a negative way. First uh, Corinthians 13 would say, love believes all things. I, I don't know that we, even in the Christian community, have, have given each, each other the benefit of the doubt a lot uh, this year. And so um, personally, it's it's, been a struggle at times to trust and love uh, brothers and sisters in Christ who are, I think, maybe in different places than I land on certain things. So that's been that's been a challenge. Um, that's probably been the, the most challenging thing this year. So, next question: When are we going to start having coffee again? Great matter, question. It's a matter of first importance. This this is pretty close. Some would say. <laughs> Some would say, I, I love that. I actually don't know the answer. Yeah, to that. we were planning on having coffee at Christmas Eve, but then we realized that have, having dormant coffee machines for as long as we did created some problem that we had to order more parts or something. So I don't, I don't know all the details, but it's coming. It's coming soon. So stay tuned. Probably Thanks. sooner than Jesus. Yeah. We'll okay. have coffee. Yes. Yeah. Jesus probably. is coming soon. Coffee is probably coming sooner. Yes. Probably. <laughs> All right, good question, next one. Why did God create other planets and stars and galaxies when we live here on Earth? That's pretty wow. good. Yeah, the psalmist, the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And so the magnificence of the other planets, the other stars, the other galaxies, is uh, incrementally coming closer to uh, us being able to grasp and sense and see the glory of God. And so the unsearchable depth of space is meant to be a picture to us of the unsearchable depths of God. Yeah, I love the why question. A why question about creation is a question that science can't answer, but uh, the scriptures do have a lot of answers to those sorts of questions, which is really cool. Um, so that's great. I, I think the answer is probably multifaceted, but absolutely to declare his glory would be a, a good one for sure. Let's go to the next one. I'm gay and I grew up in the church. I've heard pastors say that homosexuality is an abomination that deserves hell. How can I be a part of a church that believes that? Mm. Wow, that's a heavy question. And I'm so, I'm so glad that you're here with us, um, whoever wrote this in. Um, so I'll, I'll make a few comments and then Seth would love to hear your thoughts as well. I'm, I'm sorry that you've heard pastors uh, characterize your sin as um, exceptionally abominable. Uh, that's not how I would understand the scriptures teaching on homosexuality. I, I do, we do believe that homosexual relationships are, are contrary to the design of God um, and that God desires your flourishing and your joy. Um, and so we, we wouldn't be loving to tell you or to bless something that we feel like is contrary to God's plan and design because we don't think it would lead to your flourishing. However, I don't think that calling that out uh, as an exceptionally um, hell-worthy sin is, is at all appropriate, nor does it um, represent the heart of God. So um, I'm sorry that you had that experience, and I would pray that you could be a part of a church that, that would hold that tension a little 
more graciously. Hmm. Yeah, I would say that homosexuality doesn't especially deserve hell any more than any other sinful inclination would. So if you understand homosexuality to be a besetting temptation, all people have a besetting set of temptations of um, things they're inclined towards. Uh, this is called the flesh in the New Testament. You know, not our bodies. Our bodies are good. They're made by God. But the New Testament describes the flesh as being um, our desires, our heart, our will, insofar as it's out of alignment with God's design. And so Matthew has the flesh. I have the flesh. We all have the flesh. And the call to crucify the flesh and pursue life in the Spirit is something all people are called to. And so um, any particular sexual sin or even sexual sins in and of themselves are not any more or less uh, the flesh and other other sins are. So um, I would say part of what that pastor said is true, which is that you deserve hell because we all deserve hell. That's just the reality is we all are rebels who have sinned and turned from God. And so that's part of that that we kind of have to just deal with. That's really unpopular in our cultural moment, um, but it's true. Um, the second thing I'd say is this idea of I'm gay uh, and even the term homosexuality. So one of the insights that I gained from even researching and reading um, secular theorists, and the guy named Michel Foucault in his book, History of Sexuality, he talks about how um, the transition away from um, sodomy as an act to homosexuality as like a species or a category of people. An identity. An identity of people is something that happened, especially with the turn of the century. And when you kind of have an enlightenment scientific revolution where all of a sudden everything becomes testable, observable, repeatable, and you end up reducing these people to like a sexual category and you turn people who have um, different sexual temptations into a, a different species altogether. And I think our culture has done that. I think the church participated in that. And so this identity based in how I'm tempted sexually is uh, an unbiblical view of what it means to be human and actually reduces people's identity to their sexual instincts and their sexual desires. And so I just want us as a, as a whole church, and for uh, you in particular, those of you in particular who are struggling with what I would say is temptations outside of uh, creational norm for sexuality, which is all of us, right? There's nobody who doesn't fall under that exemption. I'm a sexual sinner, you're a sexual sinner. Um, the only sexual desire that we would have if sin didn't exist was for your spouse and nobody else, and nobody in this room can admit that that is true of them. So we all have disordered or anti-norm sexual desires. Um, the, what we have to do is fight the cultural temptation to reduce our identity to our temptations. It's a huge danger of saying, I am gay becomes a I, the most important thing about me, the summative way you would describe me is that I am how, what I want to do sexually. And that is actually something that came about um, mostly because of Sigmund Freud and the way that we kind of normalize all development into a sexuality. And I just want you to know that that's like, it reduces what it means to be human so much, and it's actually an oppressive dogma that's trying to reduce you into a sexual being and nothing else. And I'd say part of who we are is sexual beings, male, female, but that's such a, a small part of what it means to be human and to flourish and to thrive in society. And so this categorization of that there are people who are gay and people who are not gay is actually just like neurochemically false. Like we, we, our minds are plastic, they're changeable, we move, we shake, like we change. Um, our habits create our desires, our desires create our habits. We're not fixed, these fixed categories of gay, not gay. That's not how it works. There's just different degrees of temptation in different directions. And all of us with Jesus are called to crucify the flesh. Yeah. Amen. Amen. That's great. Next question. 
How will people who believed in God before Christ be judged? Great question. Um, yeah, how will they be judged? So uh, we believe that Christ's work on the cross once and for all secured the salvation of all of God's people, previous to him and, and after him. Um, and yet not all those people have or had the same amount of information about him or the same access to, to the scriptures in the form that we have access to. And so I think God will, will judge us on the basis of what we had. Um, Romans 1 talks about uh, how creation itself is, is enough of an insight into who God is to hold us accountable. Like we, we've seen we, what's been true about the creator has been clearly seen through what has been made. Um, and we've all kind of walked away from that. And God in his grace and his mercy has provided uh, a savior. Uh, however, I don't, I don't know that God's people in the Old Testament had the same understanding of who Christ was that we do today. And I don't know that God's going to hold them to the same account in that regard. What would you add? Yeah, the same thing you said. So Romans 3, um, 25 says, um, God performed Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Um, this was to show his righteousness because in divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. So this is saying that Jesus even died for the sins of the past um, believers in him. And so very simply, I would say that people are saved by faith in the Messiah. And the people in the Old Testament were looking forward to the Messiah who's going to come and be the one faithful law keeper who is going to save them. And so uh, they, they knew less about Jesus than we do, but they were, it's, we have faith in Jesus the Messiah who's come once and is coming again. They had faith in the Messiah who was eventually coming. And so they all had to trust in God's grace and his that he was going to provide a Messiah, whether it was a Jew in the Old Testament or a Christian post-New Testament. Amen. That's great. Next question. How is redemption structured? Why is there a lead pastor over all the congregations and who does he report to? Great question, great question. So um, starting next week, we'll have 10 congregations. Each of those congregations have local elders. Uh, in the case of church plants, it's kind of like a, um, a temporary oversight board until local el elders can be established, but there's a plurality of leadership at each local congregation. Um, and then each of those lead pastors at each of those congregations form what we call the lead team that, um, that helps provide general direction and oversight to redemption at large. Uh, in addition to those local lead pastors, we also have uh, Neil Pitchell, who's kind of the overall finance guy. He's like the CFO of Redemption. And we have Tyler Johnson, who's the lead pastor of all of Redemption. But they are, um, they are kind of in plurality working together. So no, no one person has the ultimate kind of authority. It's a, it's a group in that sense. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah, so I'd say Tyler, as a lead pastor of all Redemption, helps give vision and direction to all the congregations uh, and at local levels. And he uh, actually, like the authority structures that the lead team as a whole uh, appoints Tyler and decides to follow Tyler. So, so Tyler's just accountable to the lead team. Yeah, so good. Uh, that's who we report to, I think we, we got that, good. Who are the sons of God in Genesis 6? Oh, golly. So I'll just read this. Yeah. Just so Glad people who here. are not confused will leave confused. This is Genesis 6, sort of verse 1. Um, when man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose. Uh, 
Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, and he is flesh, and his days shall be 120 years. Verse 4. The Nephilim were those on the earth in those days and afterward. Nobody knows what that is. <laughs> some people think they're angels. Some people think they're large men. Um, some people think they're the spawn of angels. Some people and... think they're the spawn of angels and large men, or angels and men, or large men and, yeah. and humans. Yeah. Uh, a lot of speculation. Not I would just credit. say I've I've read all that's been written on this, or all the re that's written on this. Okay. One, not much has been written, which is why I'm able to read it all, <laughs> and because there's no information, so. I really don't know. Sometimes I honestly will go to this text when someone's like, oh, do you understand everything in the Bible? Because you're like a pastor and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, nope. And I literally turn to this text. I'm like, I have no idea what this means. <laughs> but I still love Jesus and I still trust in him. And I believe he died and he rose. And so you don't have to understand everything in the Bible to trust the Bible. I think that's a really good point to make. Like you don't have to be able to explain everything to still have faith in, in Jesus and experience the salvation. Yeah. And kingdom, I mean, my so. people with PhDs in Hebrew and Old Testament like have at best guesses. Their guesses are better than mine, and they're probably better than yours, but they're still guesses. Yeah. I'm thankful that we serve a God that we can't fully understand. So it's good. Next question. Why Christianity? In a world full of options, paths, and truths, why be a Christian? It's a great question. Great. Uh, I'll start. For me, um, the, the reason is uh, of all the of all the stories, Christianity best explains the world that I experience externally and internally. So um, I can only see things through my, through my perspective, right? That's where I'm coming from. And um, as I experience life and the realities of life and the brokenness of the world and the joys and the sorrows, um, both internally and externally, I think Christianity best explains those realities. Yeah. There's a lot of reasons I could give. Uh, I'd say one one of the reasons I trust the Bible is because of how self-deprecating it is. Like most of the time, you know, I, there's an uh, African proverb that says, if you want to um, understand history, like don't ask the lions because uh, they're the victors and the victors always tell this kind of self-propping up version of history. Um, and that's even very like Nietzsche and this kind of post-truth reality that all truth claims are power claims. That's kind of a pretty typical view nowadays. But if you read the Bible, it's basically written by a bunch of people who have a pretty low view of themselves and regularly without kind of flinching record their failures and their missteps and how embarrassing and, and kind of pathetic their own life was. And so the self-deprecating nature of it and how it really kind of highlights the sinfulness of humanity. And it's not like even Israel is told you're chosen because you're kind of just meh. That's, that's kind of part of the deal. And so same with the disciples. They're like these kind of like, it's not like these high and mighty, powerful, educated people doing what they're doing without flaw, but it's the self-deprecating nature of scripture. And going back to the resonance, like I think that when we, like human guilt and human shame is a universal phenomenon and really only Christianity, I think, deals honestly with it. In addition to the way that it's historically verifiable to the degree that anything is historically verifiable, I think Christianity is uh, such a picture of reality. It's sober. It's not too high. It's not too low. It has it. It makes sense of sin and grace and uh, the complicated nature of reality. Yeah. Great. Next question. How are teenagers supposed to be wise and follow God when every part of our lives are against that mission? I.e., culture, our families, even our God-given bodies. Mm. Wow. That's good. 
Um, I, I think there's a lot there that I'd love to ask some follow-up questions on, but uh, I think the, the biggest thing to understand about the, the whole Christian thing is that it's a relationship with a God who loves you. Um, and he's not like Santa Claus making a list and checking it twice and writing down all the naughty things you do. Rather, he's a, he's a father who wants to welcome you into relationship with himself. And as you commune with him more, you will desire what he desires and you'll abhor what he abhors. And so um, I, I would say uh, as a teenager or at any age, um, focus on connection with the father. Uh, and, and as your love for God grows, your, your hatred of sin will grow as well. Um, so I think part, part of pursuing God is absolutely fighting against cultural idolatries and sinful flinches and all those things. Uh, but but, but it's, it's more than that. And if your faith is reduced to simply that, um, you, you won't find what you're looking for. One thing I'd add to, and this is, uh, I'm saying this as a 30-year-old with tremendous amounts of wisdom, uh, is, is the, the Jews basically understood that it was like impossible to be wise until you were 30. So I've been wise for two months now, since October. Um, but the, this presumption is that you, if you are a teenager, then you are not wise. That's just reality. It is impossible for you to be wise until you've had enough. Like Wisdom is experience reflected well upon. And so you don't have the experience to reflect well upon it. And so one of the things I'd say is as a teenager, is just make peace with this just reality that you are not wise yet. And so therefore you need to place yourself proximate to people who are wise. So go search out wisdom. And that's a, that's it. So the, the, the Jews had, had young people read the book of Proverbs every day until they turned 30 because the assumption was their biggest problem was that they were foolish. And I think the fact that you asked this question shows me that there is a degree of wisdom that uh, is probably lacking in a lot of your peers. You're going, there's this, how can I be wise? The answer is um, live life, exp like uh, reflect on it well with God's revelation. But until then, you, you're just basically, it's impossible to be wise until you're wise and you can't be wise until you're old. And that's just true. And so if teenagers, 20-somethings, 20, 30-somethings in the room basically say, at least until you're 40, uh, the safest gear to be in is the assumption that you're foolish. Yeah. Stay close to Jesus. I, I try to read whatever I'm reading in the scriptures uh, every day. I try to read something from the Gospels and really look at Jesus. The scriptures say he's the fullest revelation of the Father, the exact imprint of his nature. Um, and so uh, we learn what the voice of God sounds like by, by reading the word of God and in particular by, by looking at and understanding and growing to love the person of Jesus. So I'd stay really close to, to Jesus. Um, yeah, there's also just a thing in our culture that just drives me nuts is that's like, especially like in the church, we do this, I do this, I kind of just did it a little bit, but there's like this shaming people for being the age that they are. And it's like, when you're 16, you know, be the best 16 you can be. Don't be mad that you're not as wise as a 40-year-old. Like, I think about all the time, like, man, if uh, my wife asked me the other day, would you, did you like high school? I'm like, I think about it every now and then. What would be like to take my 30-year-old brain and put it in my 14-year-old body and do high school again? And I just think, that's just not the way it's supposed to be. Like, God made 14-year-olds, 14-year-olds, and he made 30-year-olds, 30-year-olds, and he made 80-year-olds, 80-year-olds, and that's partly by design. That's great. Next question. Can you explain the difference between biblical justice and social justice? Yeah. Great. Do it. Yes. Next question. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I can. 
Uh, so here's what I'd say is one, social justice is a contested term. I would say that uh, there's social justice, lowercase s, lowercase j, social justice, and there's social justice, uppercase s, uppercase j, social justice, right? And so the uppercase social justice I would describe as being kind of like a, an equality of outcome on the basis of group identity social justice, um, which is kind of the, a lot of the dominant cultural way. Lowercase s, lowercase a justice, social justice, uh, is actually a term developed by Christians who are trying to articulate what I would say is like the public nature of how faith would manifest in a society. So rather than a privatized faith where it's me, my heart, and Jesus going to heaven when I die, kind of a public justice faith or a, a justice like what would it look like if all of the people in a society lived in line with uh, the heart of Christ? That would create a a just society, or there would be social justice. And so when we're talking about differentiating between biblical justice and social justice, it's helpful to kind of recognize that social justice is a term that's used in different ways, some of which are decidedly unbiblical, because it's all about people's outcomes on the basis of group identities, and other of which are maybe biblical and helpful terms. And so even in like, I use the term social justice a ton a number of years ago, and I've stopped because it's a confusing term, and I now say public justice because it's just less confusing to people. But by that, what I mean is this um, um, moving towards God's heart for a society. So what would happen if there's no sin in society? But I'm going to read this, once I can find Isaiah, um, this picture of one of my favorite theologians. If you need someone to read, where's Isaiah in here? There it is. As you're going there, I remember setting a while back and realizing that the, the the term justice and righteousness in the Old Testament are very closely related. And so one way of thinking of justice in a, in a public setting is just the right things. Like God desires the right things corporately, just as he does for us as individuals. But yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. So, the, so here's Isaiah 1, 17. This is an example. Learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. So it's the idea of the oppressed, the fatherless, the widow's cause, doing good, seeking justice, correcting oppression. So a biblical sense of justice has to do with correcting oppression. Um, my favorite theologian, Herman Bovink, used the term remunerative or reparative justice, which is um, when people have acted unjustly or when people have acted unrighteously, it creates uh, like deficits and remunerative justice would be acting um, to undo the deficits that other people created. And so that would be a biblical sense of the word justice in like the social or reparative way. Uh, and so that's not necessarily on the basis of group identity, but there are trends. Like we think about, and we have this in a membership packet, the quartet of the vulnerable, um, which here we see um, the fatherless or the orphan, the widow, um, the poor, or the sojourner are like what theologians call the quartet of the vulnerable in the Old Testament. They are people who tend to be mistreated and on the basis of that tendency, Christians should be looking out for opportunities to undo the mistreatment that has um, befallen them on the basis of society. Sometimes we'll say the last, the lost, and the least have God's heart in a particular way, and so they should have God's people's heart as well. Yeah, and so one of the other things with like kind of a secular social justice theory is it's, is it's really reducing people to the box they check, right? So, um, um, and one of the things that ends up happening is that like especially like a poor white person or a poor Christian white person who would maybe fall into the category of biblical needing restorative justice is excluded on the basis of their white privilege or something like that. And so it ends up uh, kind of reducing all social justice as kind of having to do with um, skin color and sexual identity rather than um, like the, the widow, the fatherless, which is more biblical categories. But that's sometimes not always. So I don't think it's 
healthy or fair to dismiss all social justice wholesale because I think the most important question to ask when that happens is what do you mean by social justice? Because what people say next will allow you to see whether they're talking about something that's biblical or unbiblical. Great. Next question. Why do we approach passages like 1 Corinthians 11 regarding head coverings culturally, but we take 1 Timothy 2.12 literally? First of all, do we take 1 Timothy 2.12 literally would be a good question as well. So. Are you asking a question? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so first yeah. I'll say 1 Corinthians 11 about head coverings, um, dress and the way that people carry themselves is literally cultural, and that's kind of clearly observable. The question is, what do the head coverings in 1 Corinthians 11 represent? And so that's kind of the... The question there. I mean, First Timothy two. Um, it's not rooted in fashion, which is a uh, fashion is the the peak of culture. If you think about culture as like a pyramid, the tip of the iceberg is fashion. It's the laziest and most easy thing to critique. Whereas like the deeper beliefs and values of it make up the broader culture. So that's why like going, what are kids these days wearing? Is like the laziest way of critiquing youth culture. So fashion's at the top. So fashion is part of culture. So all all things related to dress should be interpreted culturally because dress is literally um, an artifact of culture. Whereas 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul actually roots his argument in creation, and he goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, he, and he, he roots it back in Adam and Eve. And so those two texts, um, Paul's doing different things. One is taking a, a, a moment of gathering and trying to apply it to a cultural um, reality. Another one is he's trying to root a structure to God's authority um, on the basis of creational norms. So that's why those two texts are treated differently. Yeah, I will say, though, in, in every text, and certainly in this one, you have to consider the cultural realities of who it was written to. And we do that. I mean, when, when he says, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, um, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Uh, we don't take that literally in the sense that women can't sing in church and they can't speak in church. We, what we've done is we've tried to understand it through the lens of what's going on in this culture um, and then and draw out the principles that we believe God's kind of giving us through the Apostle Paul's letters to, or words to Timothy in this passage. So it's not as simple as literal or not literal. Yeah. And also, we, we let Scripture interpret Scriptures. Like elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 14, you have Paul giving guidance to when women prophesy in church, here's how it's supposed to happen. And then later in Romans 16, we have Paul talking about all these different women who are doing all these different leadership tasks and, and participating in the mission of the church. And so other things that Paul has said help us understand what Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.12. And the way that we understand that currently is that we see Paul reserving the office of elder pastor to men. And so it's a certain type of teaching that Paul is restricting. Not women can't speak generally in church, but there's a certain type of speaking that um, is reserved for the elders of a local church. Yeah. There's a lot more to say on that. We'd love to talk more about it if you'd like to hear more, but let's keep moving. Next question. Is the Bible infallible and inerrant? That means, can it fail and does it err? No, it doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't fail and it doesn't <laughs> err. Say, yes. What? Yes, the Bible is infallible. Yes, the Bible yes, is it's inerrant. inerrant. Sorry, that was confusing. <laughs> yeah. I'm I uh, had a little panic attack moment. Yeah. Saying. <laughs> I'd like to announce my church plant. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, great. Next question. Is redemption pro-law enforcement? Yeah. Absolutely. Yes, yes, we are. Um, we're, we're super thankful for 
the way that the Lord has provided um, order in our society through law enforcement. We pray for law enforcement, and um, we don't believe that, that any institution is perfect, so there's always an opportunity to, to reform and improve, uh, but we certainly would not advocate the demolition or destruction or deconstruction of, of something like that. Yeah, I would say that as it's a law enforcement, you know, law enforcement is like the, uh, you know, the face of the government sometimes, not all the times, but sometimes. I was talking to one of my buddies who's a law enforcement officer, and he's talking about how it kind of, going back to like the iceberg mentality is people, it takes kind of no courage to be a critic of law enforcement um, because they're like paid to not retaliate. And so it's pretty easy to, pretty easy to do. But I do think that like seeing law enforcement as a little bit of the tip of the iceberg of the government because they are the ones who are bearing the sword. Romans 13 and then 1 Peter uh, 3, I think, or 1 Peter 2, um, the Bible talks about the role of the government, which includes the role of law enforcement. And basically the kind of the government is supposed to do two things biblically. One is to promote what is good, which is decidedly passive. Um, but the other one is to punish what is evil and that the government bears the sword and is the agent of God's wrath on the evildoer. And so I do think that the criminal justice system as a whole has the opportunity to be like the hands of God uh, to those who are doing evil. And so the whole legislative system and what our country and nation and city considers evil is a, is a different story. And, and you know, when um, things line up with scripture or don't contradict the scripture, then they're good laws. Um, Augustine would say an unjust law is no law. But I think we live in a, a, a relatively just society compared to all societies in the history of the world, and it's a real pri privilege. And so I do think police officers should not just um, see their job as good, but they should see it as an opportunity, just like um, we all get to be, to be uh, an agent of God. And uh, in, 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 this is like going to sound really negative, but... Um, when when a police officer or the criminal justice system as a whole acts as an agent of God's wrath on the evildoer, um, they are actually a foretaste of the coming kingdom in which God will avenge all evil. And so it's not just law enforcement's good, but it's that law enforcement has the opportunity to be a witness to the wrath of God to a relatively unbelieving community. And that can be a good evangelistic opportunity. Amen. Got time for one or two more. How do I know God's will for my life? Was I created to do something specific here on earth, or does God just want me to, quote, just do something? Great question. It's a great question. I think about God's will. So there's two senses to God's will. There's his revealed will and his secret will. His revealed will is what has been taught plainly in the scriptures. So that's to do with just like general obedience or doing what God has said all over the place. And so you shouldn't ever have to pray, does God, is it God's will for me to love my neighbor, right? No, yes, like it's there. Don't pray about whether it's true or not, whether it's already in the scriptures. And so I'd say generally speaking, God's will for your life is to do what he's called you to do in scripture. Um, but most of the time this question is more specific. It's about his secret will, which is, you know, Deuteronomy 29, 29 talks about how there's just things that belong to the Lord that he's kept secret from us. And so that like includes what he's going to do tomorrow. That includes a variety of things. Um, but I do think that one of the things, one of the clues that we have, especially in 1 Corinthians 12, is that the Spirit distributes gifts according to His wisdom. And so He does design people, um, both in His initial creation and when the Spirit comes, He designs people with innate gifts, talents, and, and realities. And so I do think that um, rather than asking the question, what is God's will for my life, a more helpful question can be, how can I best steward the skills, talents, position or, or abilities that I have for 
um, the sake of loving my neighbor. So it's more of a stewardship question than like a um, hocus pocus question, right? How can I make the best use of what God's given me? Because he's given different things to you, different things to me. And so we should try to manifest a different way. So there's a lot of freedom in that. In that yeah. sense, there is a just do something element to it. Yeah, if, if you feel like, if you see it as there's this one story that you have to fit within or else you've missed it, um, I think that paralyzes people. And I don't think that's kind of how it's represented in scripture. So good. All right, next one. What do you do when God feels silent? Wow. Um, I've experienced seasons in my life like this. And so uh, I, I can just speak personally. I cry out to him. Uh, I do my best to try to stay connected and hear his voice through scripture, um, through music, um, through communing with other believers in whom his spirit dwells. Uh, but there are, I mean, there are a lot, like if you read the Psalms, Seth went to the Psalms, but uh, this is a common experience for the people of God over the centuries. It's, at times, God's voice is silent. Um, one of my favorite songs is a song by a guy named Andrew Peterson called The Silence of God. And um, in the song, he kind of explores the silence of the father toward the son in the Garden of Gethsemane, where the son is asking God to take the cup from him. And God, in his goodness, doesn't respond. Um, and he's basically kind of trying to paint this picture of how sometimes God being silent is exactly what we need. Um, and yet it's not easy and, and, it, and it can be very hard and, and the hardness, the sadness, even the despair at times can be part of God's uh, loving parental forming of his kids. So what would you say? You just want to read Psalm 10. I could have picked probably 50 different ones, but this is a, a flavor. Mostly when God feels silent, I want one of the things that happens in our hearts for us to go is to say, um, I'm not alone in experiencing the silence of God. Not only that, but people have experienced the silence of God. God used them to write scripture. And so I just, I just want to read this. So this, The title of the psalm is, Why Do You Hide Yourself? This is Psalm 10. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. They let them be caught in the schemes that they've devised. The wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. The pride in the pride in the pride of his face, the wicked does not see him. All his thoughts are there is no God. His ways seem prosperous at all times. Your judgments are on high. As far as your foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. It goes on and on. These are saying, not only are you not silent, but all this terrible stuff is happening and you seem to be not doing nothing about it. Uh, and so like the psychological experience of the silence of God is God is doing something there. So, so that matters a ton. And I just want us to be able to lean into that. Uh, you know, even Jesus before Pilate and Pilate is addressing him. Sometimes Jesus is silent. And he doesn't answer. So one, he just tell Pilate who he was, but he's silent. Sometimes silence is telling the truth. Uh, I would say that one thing that we can know for sure is that even when we have this psychological experience of God's silence, um, his word is always speaking. And so sometimes there can be, I would say like, I would call like a spiritual anorexia that like what's needed sometimes is like a disciplined force feeding so we can regain the appetite and regain our taste. Mm -hmm. 
and that can be part of the process. It's not always how it works. There's really no cause effect on what to do because sometimes the silence goes deeper and deeper and deeper. Sometimes I've heard um, like old medieval theologians describe it as the dark night of the soul when God removes the experience of his blessed presence in order to test to see, will you obey me because I'm God and not just because of how I make you feel? And so sometimes there's a test in the silence of God. Sometimes the silence of God is a product of our sinfulness. Um, you know, First Peter 3 talks about if someone um, does not live with their wife in an understanding way, God doesn't hear their prayers. So there's like a, a callus develops that if we refuse to love the people that God has given us to love, God can kind of withdraw as an act of discipline. And sometimes there's just what different people in church history have called spiritual depression, which is just, it feels like you pray and the, and this happens in um, Lamentations, Lamentations 3, I think it's 18 or 22. It says, I pray, but my prayers bounce off the clouds. And so there's this just feeling of, is anybody out there? And so you're not alone in that. God's always doing something, and he's very often not doing what we want him to do, which is part of the, makes it even that much more painful. Yeah, those are deep waters, but um, God is good in all of it, so... We uh, close with the benediction. Yeah, if we didn't get to your questions, I'm very sorry, but time is what it is. It moves forward. So uh, I love to, if we can stand, I'd love to do a benediction over us before we uh, wrap up. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Hope in this gateway. Amen. Have a great rest of your Sunday.